We are in the fourth week of our series, The Seven Deadly Sins. And uh, we've been spending these last few weeks talking about these sins that, uh, as the scripture says, so easily entangle us. And I've heard some great feedback about this series. Uh, This past week, actually, someone was sharing with me a conversation they were having with someone else. And they said, uh, oh, I show up every week and I think, oh, I I see the list of the sin we're going to talk about. And I say, good, I know someone needs to hear this this morning. And then, bam, we think, oh, wait a minute, it's me. Uh, God shows us how uh, we often let these sins, even the ones that we think we don't struggle with, uh, infiltrate our hearts and our lives. And each week I've been presenting these deadly sins and helping us to see them from maybe a different perspective than you're used to. And that's not just to be clever, right? Uh, I want that to help us, to help myself, uh, not to let myself get off the hook because I think, oh, I don't struggle with that. So we've seen some of these kind of twists in the middle of the message of what this really looks like in our lives. And, and we're doing that not because we want us to feel shame, or to feel bad about ourselves, but because Jesus wants to, is, us to experience the freedom that can come when we rid ourselves of these deadly sins. And as we've already talked about in this series, not all of these sins carry the same weight, not in the world and not even here in the church. We tolerate some of these more than others. We know that pride can lead to a fall. We know that anger can be a real problem in our lives. And we saw last week, sloth. I know some people went, meh, okay. I'm not lazy. And we saw what this can really mean in our lives and in our hearts when we're not paying attention to the things that God is wanting us to pay attention to and we're choosing to do something else. And the sin we're going to look at today is lust. I know some of you are already going, "Uh uh-oh, this one's going to be interesting. Well, this week I, I really struggled with how to present this. Now, I could talk about lust the way we've talked about these others in and, and kind of more generic sense and even put that little twist into it uh, of how we might not think this applies to us, but it really does. Uh, because the reality is lust manifests itself in many other ways than what we normally think of. Because whenever I said that to you, the first thing you thought of when I thought of lust was sex. But there's so much more and there's so many ways that lust manifests itself in our hearts and in our lives than just through sex. And I want us to see that today. And I want us to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit to convict us of where this deadly sin has taken root, even if it's below the surface. I want to show you this image here of an iceberg. And and this, when we see this, we can see the danger that lies ahead. And this is the way that many of these seven deadly sins present themselves. Above the surface, we see what happens when someone lashes out in anger, when someone is greedy. And even when someone exhibits lust in a way that it manifests itself through adultery or, or cheating or pornography or whatever it might be. But Jesus wants us to understand at a heart level, there's so much more going on below the surface. That the sin that we might see, what we might call the behavior that's a result of that sin, there's something that's fueling it underneath. And that's what I want us to understand as we go through this seven deadly sin series, but especially this morning. Because a lot of us look at this sin of lust and we'd say, uh, this doesn't apply to me. But there's so much going on below the surface. So I want to give a little disclaimer here this morning. First off, I'm going to keep it PG. Uh, Some of you guys are worried about that. Uh, But I also recognize that this topic of lust, especially when dealing with sexual lust, is not only uncomfortable to talk about in the church, 
Although, let's be honest, the world is talking about this all the time. It's doing plenty of talking, but it's extremely complex and nuanced. I fully recognize and acknowledge that uh, whether you're in the room or whether you're watching online, that this is one of those sins, one of those desires that are twisted, that many of us have experiences about that have left us confused, wounded, shamed, abused, and broken. And there's no way in 30 minutes today that I can unpack all the different situations and nuances for us to have a full understanding of not only the general sin of lust, but in particular, how so many of us in our world today deal with it, and that's sexual lust. So here's the dilemma I was in. I realized that not everyone faces and battles the temptation of sexual lust. But I think more of us do than we want to admit. And this isn't just a message for men. Women lust. And while it doesn't always look the same, this is not just a guy problem. I read an email from a woman's ministry leader, not from our church, but she said this about women's struggle with the sin of lust. She said, men seem to be the primary target when addressing lust, but it's a mankind sin, not a man-only sin. Women just have the ability to be more discreet and well-mannered with their lust. We can prettify most anything, including our lustful thoughts and desires. And with skilled self-justification, we can validate our sin by spinning it as it's just being romantic or not just lustful. So this isn't a guy's sin, nor is it just a young person's sin. And if this is a temptation that has no allure to you, count yourself extremely blessed. Although I do hope that even this morning you'll hear from the Holy Spirit some ways that you might struggle with lust other than sexual ways. But we all struggle in one way or other with lust. So do we approach this from the way that most of us are experiencing this or do we uh, do a more generic point of view? And here's my concern with addressing it at just a more generic point of view or to not talk about sexual lust as much as I'd prefer to talk about something else with all of you here this morning. The world is doing exactly the opposite. So we have to bring this to light. We're going to see that in a minute. But I want to let you know uh, that our discussion questions for this week uh, we purposely, in our growth group guide, uh, made those the more generic because we know that many of you are just getting to know each other and to dive right in to talk about your sexual sins and lust might be a little heavy for some. Uh, it's completely okay if you do that, but uh, those questions are going to be geared more generic. But this morning, I want us to talk specifically about sexual lust. But I'm going to approach this gently. Uh, but I'm going to take a moment here and I'm going to pray for us. And if you uh, have little kids in the room, I'm not going to say anything that they probably haven't heard before. But if you feel more comfortable, we do have our children's ministry open. And uh, no one will judge you if you walk out. But I, I promise you, I'm not going to say anything they probably haven't already heard. But let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence. We thank you for the worship that we've experienced this morning. Uh, Lord, that we know that we can rest in you. Lord, that we need to, to have our hearts be about you and oriented towards you. And Lord, I just pray over the next few minutes as we talk about this uncomfortable topic, Lord, um, but that we would recognize uh, that, that you have a design for us in our desires. All the desires that we have, Lord, uh, you have a place and a purpose for them. Help us to see those and to live those out 
Lord, help us to, to come face to face this morning. Lord, Holy Spirit, convict us, convict me of the things that are going on below the surface in my heart that I often try to hide. And God, may this morning, may everything that we do point people to you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. The church together said, amen. amen. While lust and specifically sexual lust isn't a new problem, maybe now more than any other time in history, we're inundated with this. It's everywhere. You turn on the television, it's in movies, it's in magazines, it's in music, it's on billboards, it's in video games. And in the last five years or so, it's grown online. It's everywhere. But I want to say this, in case you were told wrong, I want you to know that God is pro-sex. We laugh at that a little bit, but God is pro-sex. Proverbs chapter 5 May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. God wants us to experience this amazing blessing that he has given us. God created sex. He created sex to be enjoyed. Uh, The first thing that God told Adam and Eve was to be what? Fruitful and multiply. But that's not just about procreation. It's not a thing to be endured, and it's not a task that's to be completed. It's, first of all, a command. And it was good, and it was God's idea. See, there are parts of your body that are designed by God with only one purpose, enjoyment, pleasure. Now, because there's little ones in here, I'm not going to do this, but if you have any doubt that God is, loves and created sex for a specific purpose, go home and open up the book of Song of Solomon. I'm not going to read it here this morning, but maybe that could be your afternoon uh, routine this week. Bonus points if you want to read it to your spouse. (laughs) God is pro-sex, and God designed sex for more than just physical pleasure. He intended it to be a spiritual, emotional, and physical experience designed to be expressed and experienced within the covenantal relationship of marriage. Genesis chapter 2, 24 says this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united. That means joined together to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no shame in these desires that they had for each other. Now, flesh doesn't just mean physical. That's the amazing part. It means one person uniting one person, body, mind, and spirit. The union that happens in the context of sexual expression in marriage is often called the mingling of souls. Now, please understand this. This flies in the face and goes contrary to what current culture tells us sex is. The Bible just said that sex goes well beyond just the physical act. And the world is telling us that this is not only the most important thing in your life, but it's also just about feeling good. We've elevated sexual pleasure to some crazy high standard that somehow is the barometer for how your satisfaction level in life is supposed to be. If you have any doubt about this, the next time you're at JC or Walmart or whatever and you're standing in the line and there's magazines there, look at the titles of the articles in there. That's what we say is the most important thing in life to experience this. So here's the world's view of lust. This is not just sexual, but it's the most apparent. That's what we're going to talk about here this morning. The world's view of lust. As long as your appetite or your lust meets the following three criteria, then it's fine to do. The first one, is it desirable? 
Do you want it? Once again, not just sexual lust, but any desire, any lust that you have in your life. Is it desirable? Second, is it consensual? Do those participating in it agree with you that they want to be part of this? Once again, no matter what it might be, not just sexual. And is it safe? That's a big one, right? We say it's not hurting anybody. Whatever I might indulge in, it's not hurting anyone. That's the cultural ethic of lust in our world today. Is it desirable? Is it consensual? Is it safe? Now, this isn't anything new. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be jumping around a little bit, but if you have your Bibles and you want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12, it says this. First of all, if you're reading from, most translations have this first part here in little, uh, I'm losing the word here. What? Yes, it's a quotation, right? So it's in quotes. Sorry, I had a brain mess up there. Uh, It's because it's saying that this is a saying that was often said before. It says, I have the right to do anything, right? That's in quotation marks. That this this is something that was said often, just like it is today. I have the right to do anything, you say. But Paul's saying not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, once again, this is a phrase that was just commonly used during the day. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. See, these are the wrong questions. The world's sexual ethic, the world's view of lust is the wrong questions to ask when dealing with our desires. Desires aren't inherently right or wrong. Lots of our desires, including our desire for love, acceptance, and yes, even sex, are given to us by God. So here's the definition we're going to use of what lusting is this morning. Lusting is desiring something that is not right for you to possess at this time or in this way. It's a desire, but it's not right in that moment. Remember, desires aren't all bad. They become lusts when they don't meet the three questions that we should look at from a biblical view of desires. That's what we're going to see here next. This is the biblical or what God says. This is his view of desires. These are the questions you should be asking yourself. Is it desirable? Same question. Is it damaging to myself or others? And I just mean physically. Below the waterline, what's happening there? Is this damaging to my brother or sister? And the third question, is it holy? See, when dealing with sexual desires, the question isn't how far can you go on a date before you cross the line into sin. The right question is this, how can my life, my thoughts, my choices, my emotions, my conversations, and my behavior make me into the person that makes me look more like Jesus? So again, I want us to talk about lust and not be afraid to really address the elephant in the room for many of us. Now, here's my last disclaimer. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you may not be in agreement with what we're defining today. I'm not saying that we're going to talk about what we need or what we read in the Bible that it's not true for you. But if you haven't made the decision to sign on with Jesus, all of this is going to seem foreign to you. And this message isn't going to try to convince you that lust, sexual or otherwise, is a sin. I'm presupposing that for us this morning. That we're in agreement. That lust is sin because lust is a deadly sin. Lust kills. 
There are those of us who face the deadly sin of lust, especially as we understand it today, maybe several times a day. It's not just a danger for us, it's deadly. It kills. It kills marriages. It kills our bank accounts. It kills families. It kills our understanding of who we are as a son or daughter of God. And it sometimes actually physically kills. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3, says this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I want us to back up here and look at one of these verses again. That in a manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Remember, one of the questions that we ask ourselves, that we need to ask ourselves, is this hurting someone else? And in this time, Paul's writing uh, to the church there that's struggling with lust. And he's specifically talking about sexual lust here. But so many of us have allowed our lust to take advantage of others. Sometimes even mutually take advantage of each other. We've consented to that right, but we're taking advantage of what God has blessed us. And it's our responsibility in those moments to be looking to the needs of others. Now, Jesus has some words to say about lust as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But I say to you, everyone who looks... It's like Jesus' mic drop moment there. Can you... Imagine what these people are feeling here in this moment. Yeah, of course we get a God. Uh, the sins that happen above the water, like we, we, the ones that we see, right? We can't commit adultery. We're not going to cheat on our spouses. We know that's wrong. He says, no, there's something else going on below the surface when you lust. Jesus says everyone, not just a married person who cheats on a spouse, He says that everyone, this message is for all of us, married, single, divorced, widowed, young, old, it doesn't matter, everyone. There's an often told story about an 82-year-old college professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. He was counseling a young man who was struggling with some of these very issues. He was struggling with lust. And at one point, the student asked the professor, he said, at what age will lust no longer be a problem? And the professor replied, I can't say exactly exactly. But it's sometime after 82. (laughs) Jesus says this is for everyone. Everyone who looks is what he says. What does it mean to look? It doesn't mean to see. There's a look that just sees, that notices something. That's one thing. God gave us, once again, the gift of finding the opposite sex attractive. That's not dirty and that's not bad. If we didn't have that desire, most of us would not be in this room today. 
Remember, God created sex, and he designed us to find each other attractive. But there's a different kind of look. It's not just the head swivel. It's the second and the third head swivel, or the continuous look. The Greek word that's used here is the word blepo, and it means to behold. It's expressing an earnest, what the definition would say is contemplation. It's a look that lingers. It's more than just recognizing beauty. Once again, the desires that God has given us, those desires are not bad. But it's the second look, or maybe a third look. It's a look that holds on. Have you seen this meme around the internet? If you've been on social media, you've probably seen this. And it started, it's obviously apparent what's happening there. Now, what's interesting, though, is I see this image probably 10 times a day on different sites and groups I'm part of because it's kind of come, become a joke. Uh, and you might have even seen some of these where it's not just the sexual lust that's happening here of this guy checking out another girl when he's obviously with someone else. Uh, it's applied to all sorts of things. Uh, they can say you're looking at a car, or I even saw this on a Bible site where they were talking about uh, coveting and lusting after certain kind of Bibles. Uh, it's, it's this look that just lingers, that second or third look. Matthew chapter 5, 28, he says, But I say to everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Lustful intent. Now, depending on which translation you're reading, it might say something different. It might just say looks lustfully. And that's not wrong, but it misses something important, the word intent. It means to look at someone with the intent to lust. It's not by accident. It didn't just happen to you. You chose it. And that's an important distinction. Look at a woman with lustful intent. It's not seeing something on your phone and you're scrolling. It's scrolling back to look at it again. Lustful intent. So what's lustful? It's the Greek word epitomio. And it means to desire. It actually is tied to another sin we're going to talk about later, but to covet. Lustful intent is to look upon a person sexually or emotionally in a way that desires what is not yours to have. Are you with me? What does it mean to look upon a woman with lustful intent, to look upon a man with lustful intent? It's to want them in a way that you are not in covenant with them to take. To take what is not yours is maybe a better way to say it. It's stealing. Lusting is imagining what you would do with a person if there were no consequences. Looking lustfully at a person is moving them from their God-given state as a son or daughter of the king, as an image bearer of God, and serving them for something else, seeing them as something else to obtain. It's desiring them in a way that's ultimately selfish. It's about you taking something for yourself that's not yours to have in that moment and in that way. Now, the word here used for lust in the Greek carries with it, as I said, a sense of greed, selfishness, and ultimately what we call idolatry. And that last part is important. Jesus is saying there's more going on here than just having a physical relationship outside of marriage. 
Saying you're having a relationship, a spiritual, emotional, and a physical relationship outside of the covenant of marriage. He's saying it's fantasizing, coveting, desiring, longing for someone or something that only God can give. See, lust is anything where you begin to create in your mind an alternative reality than the one you're walking in. The one that God has put you in. Looking becomes lusting when we start to entertain the idea of these two words. I wish. I wish my life was different. I wish my husband was like him. I wish my wife looked like her. I wish. I think it's critical to understanding what Jesus is telling us. Lusting is coveting something that's not yours to have in that moment and in that way. And it comes from a deep-rooted desire for something that you don't have. Something that you think is missing because you don't think God is providing it. See, lust is completely self-centered. A person is made into an object. That's why pornography is such a huge problem for us today. Pornography in all of its forms makes people objects. Love is turned to lust and people are turned into property. Pornography, once something for many of us, especially those of us who are older, you might have had to search out. It's not that way anymore. Pornography is so prevalent in our society. Depending on the the stats you might read, kids as little as the age of five have experienced this. We don't have to look for it anymore. It's right in front of us. Remember, lusting is desiring something that's not right for you to possess. And I think this is bigger than the elevation of sexuality or primarily women, but men also. See, we're looking for completeness, for wholeness. There's a song they say, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. You guys remember that? That's literally what's happening We're trying to fill something. We have a desire within us that we're filling with something that is not meant for us to have in that moment and in that way. There's a quote that's often attributed to the theologian Chesterton, and it says this, the man who knocks at the door of a brothel is really looking for God. Well, that seems silly at first, but it's this desire within us that we're meeting in a way that God didn't intend for us to in that moment and in that way. When the human heart is lusting, it rationalizes all sorts of things that don't make sense. In his book, The Obedience Option, David Haig tells a story about a conversation he had with a young man who claimed he couldn't stop lusting. He said that it was inevitable, that it wasn't his fault because God had given him these desires and these urges And so he couldn't control them. And finally, Haig interrupted the young man and said, suppose I came into your room and caught you with your girlfriend when you were starting this inevitable act of lust. Suppose I took out 10 $100 bills and told you they were yours if you stopped. What would you do? The young man quickly said he'd rather have the cash. And Haig said, so what happened to this irresistible force of lust that you couldn't control? And that's what lust does to us. It causes us not to think straight in the moment and to make decisions that we say are beyond our control. Even though it may feel like it's not within our control, that's not an excuse. Lust is not something that happens to you. But it's an incredibly sneaky sin. 
Because sin is like that. James chapter 1 says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, this comes from within us. It's not happening to us. And guess what the word for desire is here in this passage that we just read? It's the same word used for lust when Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 5. When you allow lust to lure you in, it leads to death. And what does a lure do in fishing? It's supposed to catch something. In order to admire its beauty? No, to kill it, to hang it on your wall. It's especially dangerous because often we don't notice it. It's like that iceberg. Until it pokes above the surface, it's just something going on within our heart that we think maybe nobody knows about. Or it's not hurting anyone. Nobody sees what's happening. So I know we're running out of time here, but what's the remedy for lust? What can be done about this? How do we deal with lust? I want to give you three R's to help you deal with lust. The first is to recognize. You have to recognize there is a problem. When you're experiencing desire, whether it's for someone that catches your eye, someone you see on a screen, a new car, a new outfit, whatever it might be, those desires, ask yourself those three questions. Is it desirable? Is it damaging to myself or others? And is it holy? So first, you need to recognize The second R is to remove, or could be better said, maybe run. What are you willing to do? Jesus goes on in Matthew 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This seems pretty radical. And I'll admit, this is confusing. Especially people who say, when we read the Bible, we, we say it means what it says it says. It mean, means what it says it means, right? But I don't see very many of us walking around with pirate patches today. And we're not going to set up a little kiosk in the lobby where you can get your hand cut off. So what's Jesus saying here? He's speaking in hyperbole, right? He's exaggerating to make a point. And the point is this. This is serious. It leads to death. Do whatever it takes to change the condition of your heart. If something as precious as your eyes or your hands are a stumbling block for you, get rid of it. See, getting this right, remember, at the heart level is so important. And Jesus is saying, it'd be better for you to be handless and eyeless than to let your heart dwell in this mess. Jesus is making sure we understand the seriousness of sin. It has to die. See, lust is not something to be treated. And Jesus is making sure that we understand we can't treat this. It has to be removed. It has to be removed. So what might gouging your eye or cutting your hand off look like for you in your daily life? Maybe it means getting rid of your cell phone. Or at least putting a filter on it. Maybe it means staying off social media or deleting that app. Maybe it might mean staying off Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is that sparks I wish for you. Again, it doesn't have to just be sexual. But when you're desiring something that's not right for you to have in that moment and in that way. Maybe it's movies. Again, it doesn't just have to be R-rated movies or movies that we just know are bad. Anything that turns your heart towards lust. 
HGTV can do that for some of us, right? Desiring things is God saying, this is not for you right now. Not in this way. Was it on TV? Maybe it's Game of Thrones or it could be the Hallmark Channel. Whatever it is that causes that igniting that desire within you that, that is not of God. There's some practical examples we read in Scripture of how to deal with this. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Remove it. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Potiphar's wife, you remember that story? This woman comes on to this young man, Joseph, and what does it say Joseph did when he experienced that moment? He ran away. He removed himself from the situation. He didn't try to handle it. He took off. He removed himself. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from useful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now in this context, he's not just talking about sexual lust. See, the things from when you were young, and not just young in your age, right? Young in your faith. The past, the things that used, you used to chase after. So we've got to recognize, we've got to run, we've got to remove, and here's the third R. We've got to replace. A pastor named Wilkerson said this. He said, if your only strategy for beating lust is to say no for as long as you can, then it's only a matter of time because your no before your no wears out and you're overcome with temptation. The only way to defeat any kind of temptation, any desire, any lust that's wrong is to have a stronger yes. We have to replace. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 11. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the home I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in to live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than, or worse than the first. Removing it from our life and just trying to pretend it's not a problem anymore doesn't fix the situation. It will return unless we replace it with something else. We have to fill that space, those desires, with something else. A stronger yes. Lust may feel overwhelming, and it's easy for us to let it gain control of our hearts, but we're not powerless against it. Remember, lust isn't something we have to experience. Do you remember the story that I shared just a few minutes ago about the young man who said he couldn't control himself and was presented with the money? He was presented with the money, and then he was able to control himself because he had a stronger yes. And the author of the story goes on to say, at that moment, remember, this is a real-life situation he has. He says, that moment, we both realized a very simple truth. One passion may seem irresistible until a greater passion comes along. So here's my question for us today. What is your stronger yes? What is the thing that you need to say yes to once you've removed lust, no matter what that lust is from your life? 
What is going to fill that space? See, it isn't just about saying no. That might work for a little while. But if you don't fill that spot with a stronger yes, a godly yes, I promise you, you will find yourself dealing with that same lust again. You might experience a little reprise, a little break, but if you don't fill it with a stronger yes, it will come back. And the best way to say no to the sin of lust is to get busy saying yes to God and his good things. Saying yes over and over to God's good things so that we don't have the time or the energy, the space in our hearts, and eventually even the desire to lust after those things. Augustine said this. He said, our hearts are created to be restless until they find rest in God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you? One of the best replacements for sinful desires for lust is refocusing on the things of God, allowing his Holy Spirit to take up residence in that space where he fills us, lust has no room to take root. Where he shapes our behavior, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, those things come out of us instead of the acts of the flesh. So how do we refocus on the things of God? Tuning our hearts to his Spirit. One way that we do this every week to help remind us, it's through our time of communion. So if you've got your elements, I want to encourage you to take those out. If you didn't get them on your way in, there's some on the table back here. But each week we take a time to remember the price that was paid for us. That Jesus died on the cross so that we could be raised to life with him. So that we could, as we heard Abby sing about this morning, find rest in him. And when we take the bread that was given for us, it reminds us of his body. When we take the cup, it reminds us of his blood that was given so we wouldn't have to try to fill our hearts with other desires, with things of this world. We could be filled with his Holy Spirit. His presence is in us. That's what that says. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Temples of the living God. How can we fill our minds, fill our hearts with a prostitute? When we take his communion, we're reminded of his love, of his sacrifice. But we're also reminded of who we are. And we're going to close today. I want to give you some time to reflect. We're going to end this a little bit different than we normally do. We're not going to take this together right now. I want you to take this on your own over the next minute or so. We're going to, Abby's going to lead us in a song. And during this time, I want you to take the bread and the juice. And I want you in the quietness of your own heart between you and God to ask yourself, what am I filling myself with? Am I filling myself with the desires that God has? Or am I lusting after things that God says, not now and not in this way? Because when we take this communion, we take the bread and the juice we take this inside us for a reason. 
We don't just watch somebody else do this. As believers in Christ, we do this so that we can be reminded that God's Holy Spirit is now within us. Our bodies are a temple. We need to fill ourselves not with things of the world, but with the desires of his heart. We need to replace that space with him. Nothing else. We don't want to be filled with things that are not of him, but filled with only him. And so over the next few minutes, I'm going to pray in just a minute, and then I want you to just on your own, as you feel ready, take the bread that reminds us of his body that was given for us. Take the cup that reminds us of his blood that was given for us. And as you take it, ask, God, what do I need to empty, to remove, to run from so that I can be filled with more of you? Let's pray together. God, forgive us for the times that we have allowed lust, these disordered desires, Lord, to to infiltrate our, our lives and our hearts. And Lord, I know many of us have experienced this in a way that's above the waterline and people have seen it. And it's messed up our lives. But God, so many of us are struggling with this below the surface. Help us to recognize, not pretend that it's not there, but to recognize the places, Lord, that we have tried to fill with things that are not of you. And Lord, we thank you for your love that you gave your son so that we could be filled with you, so that our hearts could desire you and nothing else. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.